Open Sci-Fi, Episode 6, recorded June 6, 2007. Hello and welcome to Open Sci-Fi. I'm once again sorry for not having an episode out for two weeks. I will attempt to do a few in the next several weeks. Um, I have a form now. It is at http colon slash slash seventy two dot freebb dot com slash open sci fi slash. I have started a poll there which will say if we should change this to a Creative Commons attribute share alike. I have found tons of great content on the web I could use in this podcast. And I will have this website in the um show description. Alright, welcome to the news portion of our episode. Um, these articles are fairly old because I had prepared this episode a few weeks ago, hoping to give it, um, here we go. Microsoft is at again. They are now suing Linux for breaking 200 of their patents. A group of scientists in California have made super oxidized water, uh, which should help the healing process. And magnets are being used to regrow brain cells. It has only been done with mice, and it may not work at all. Um, that's all. And now on to the Green Odyssey. We now join Green on its adventures to the rocket. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. The Green Odyssey by Philip Jose Farmer. Chapter 16 through 18. Then the flare had died, and had left nothing but its afterimage on the eye and panic on the brain. Green did not know what to make of it. In the first instant, he had thought that it was the roller alone that was speeding toward an uncharted forest-grown hill. Immediately after, he'd seen that his senses were deceiving him, and that the mass was also moving. It had looked like a hill, or several hills, sliding across the grass toward them. But even as the darkness came back, he'd seen that there were other hills behind it, and the whole thing was actually a sort of iceberg of rocks and of soil, from which grew trees. That was all he could make out in that confusing moment. Even then he couldn't believe it, 
because a mountain just didn't run along of its own volition on flat land. Credible or not, it was not being ignored by the helmsman. They must have turned the wheel almost at once, for Green could feel the leaning of the mast to port and the shift of wind upon his face. The bird was swinging to the southwest in an effort to avoid the roaming island. Unfortunately, it was too dark for the men to have worked swiftly in trimming the sails, even if a full crew had been aloft, and there were far too few on the top, as it was not thought necessary to have them on duty when the roller was running in the post-sunset drizzle. Green had time for one short prayer. No nonsense about punching a god in the nose now. And then he was hurled against the wall of the nest. There was the loudest noise he'd ever heard. The loudest, because it was the crack of doom for him. Rope split like a giant's whip cracking. Spars, suddenly released from the rigging, strummed like monster violins. The masts, falling down, thundered. Intermingled with all that were the screams of the people below on the deck and in the holds. Green himself was screaming as he felt the foremast lean over, and he slid from the floor of the nest, which had suddenly threatened to become a wall, and fought to hold himself on the wall, which had now become a floor. His fingers closed on the musket support with the desperation of one who clings to the only solid thing in the world. For a minute, the mass stopped its forward movement, held taut by the tangled mass of ropes. Green hoped that he was safe, that all the damage had been done. But no, even as he dared think he might come out alive, the mighty grinding noise began again. The island of rock and trees was continuing its course and was smashing the hull of the ship beneath it, gobbling up wheels, axles, keel, timber, cargo, cannon, and people. The next he knew he was flying through the air, torn from his hold, catapulted far away from the roller. It seemed as if he actually soared, gained altitude, though this must have been an illusion. Then the hard return to earth, the impact on his face, his body, his legs the outstretched arms to soften the blow that must surely splinter his bones and pulp his flesh. The pitiful arms, the last warding-off gesture before annihilation, the series of hard blows, like many fists, the sudden realization that he was among tree branches and that his fall was being broken by them, his trying to grab one to hang on and it slipping away and his continued rapid and punishing descent. Then... Oblivion. He didn't know how long he'd been unconscious, but when he sat up, he saw through the trunks of the trees the shattered hull of the bird about a hundred feet away. It was lying on its side on a lower level than he was, so he supposed that he was sitting on the slope of a hill. Only half of the craft was in sight. It must have broken in two and most of the mid-deck and stern ground into rubble beneath the advancing juggernaut of the island. Dully, he realized that the drizzle had stopped, the clouds had cleared, and the big and little moons were up. The seeing was good. Too good. There were people left alive in the wreck, men, women, and children, who were trying to climb through the tangle of ropes, spars, and broken, jagged, projecting planks. Screams, moans, Shouts and calls for help made a chaos. Groaning, he managed to rise to his feet. 
He had a very painful headache. One eye was so swollen he couldn't see with it. He tasted blood in his mouth and felt several broken teeth with his lacerated tongue. His sides hurt when he breathed. The skin seems to have been torn off the palms of his hands. His right knee must have been wrenched, and his left heel was a ball of fire. Nevertheless, he got up. Amra and Paxi and her other children were in there. That is, unless they'd been caught in the other half. He had to find out. Even if they were beyond his help, there were others who weren't. He started to hobble through the trees. Then he saw a man step out from behind a bush. Thinking that he must be a survivor who had wandered off in a dazed condition, Green opened his mouth to speak to him. But there was something odd about him that imposed silence. He looked closer. Yes, the fellow wore a headdress of feathers and held a long spear in his hand. And the moonlight, where it slipped through the branches and shone upon an exposed shoulder, gleamed red, white, blue-black, yellow, and green. The man was painted all over with stripes of different colors. Green slowly sank down upon his hands and knees behind a bush. It was then that he became aware of others who stood behind trees and watched the wreck. Then these emerged from the darkness under the branches. Presently, at least fifty plumed, painted, armed men were gathered together, all silent, all intently inspecting the wreck and the survivors. One raised a spear as a signal and gave a loud, whooping war cry. The others echoed him, and when he ran out from beneath the branches, they followed him. Green could watch only for a minute before he had to close his eyes. No, no, he moaned. The children, too. When he forced himself to look again, he saw that he had been mistaken in thinking that everybody had been put to spear. After the first vicious onslaught, in which they'd killed indiscriminately and hysterically, like all undisciplined primitives, they'd spared the younger women and the little girls. Those able to walk were lined up and marched off under the guard of half a dozen spearmen. The two badly injured were run through on the spot. Even in the midst of this scene, Green felt that some of his intense anguish eased a little. Amra was still alive. She held Paxi in one arm, and with the other pulled Soon, her daughter by the temple sculptor. Though she must have been terribly frightened, she faced her captors with the same proud bearing she'd always had, whether in the presence of peasant or prince. Inzax, her maid, stood behind her. Green decided that he'd better try to follow her and her captors at a discreet distance. But before he could get away, he saw the women and older children of the savages appear, bearing torches. Fortunately, none came his way. Some of these mutilated the dead, dancing around the hacked corpses and howling in imitation of the adult men. Then began the work in earnest, the carving up of the flesh. These painted people were cannibals, and made no bones about it. Fires were being lit for a midnight snack, before the bulk of the meat was brought back to wherever their homes were. Green stayed far enough behind the prisoners and savages to keep out of sight if any man should turn. The path was narrow, winding between crowding trunks and under low branches. 
the soil underfoot was rich and springy, as if composed of generations of leaves. Green estimated he must have gone at least a mile and a half, not as the crow flies, but more like a drunk trying to find his way home. Then, without warning, the forest stopped, and a clearing was before him. In the midst of this stood a village of about ten log houses with thatched roofs. Six were rather small outhouses serving one purpose or another. The four large ones were, he guessed, long houses for community living. They were grouped about a central spot in which were the remains of several large fires beneath big iron pots and spits. Clay tanks were scattered here and there. These held rainwater. Before each house was a twenty-foot-high totem pole, brightly painted, and around it many slender poles holding skulls. The prisoners were led into one of the outhouses and the door barred. A man stationed himself at the front, squatting with his back to the wall and holding a spear in one hand. The others greeted the old women and younger children who had been left behind. Though they spoke in a language Green didn't understand, they were obviously describing what they'd found at the wreck. Some of the old crones then began piling brushwood and small logs under one of the huge iron kettles. Presently they had a fire blazing brightly. Others brought out glasses and cups of precious metals, loot from the wrecks. These they filled with some sort of liquor, probably a native beer, judging from the foam that spilt over the sides. One of the young boys began idly tapping upon a drum, and soon was beating out a momentous simple rhythm. It looked as if they were going to make a night of it. But after a few drinks, the warriors arose, picked up jugs of liquor, and walked into the woods, leaving one man to guard the prisoner's hut. All the children over the age of four left with them, trailing along in the dark, though the warriors made no effort to slow their pace so the children could keep up. Green waited until he was sure the spearmen were some distance away, then rose. His muscles protested any movement, and pains shot through his head, knee, and ankle. But he ignored them and limped around the edge of the clearing until he came to the back of one of the longhouses. He slipped inside and stood by the side of the doorway. It was more illuminated than he'd thought at first because of the several large and open windows which admitted moonbeams. Hens sleepily clucked at him, and one of the midget pigs grunted questioningly. Suddenly something soft brushed across his ankles. Startled, he jumped to one side. His heart, which had been beating fast enough before, threatened to hammer a hole in his ribs. He crouched, straining to see what it was. Then a soft meowing nearby told him. He relaxed a little and stretched out a hand, saying, "'Here, kitty, kitty, come here.' But the cat walked by, his tail raised and a look of disdain on his face as he disappeared through the door. Seeing the animal reminded Green of something about which he was anxious. That was whether the natives kept dogs or not. He hadn't seen any, and thought that surely if there were some he'd have long ago heard the noisy beasts. Undoubtedly, by now, he should have had a whole pack of the obnoxious monsters snarling at his heels. Silently, he walked into the long single room with its high ceiling. From thick rafters hung rolled-up curtains, which he supposed would be let down to make a semi-private room for any families that wished it. 
From them also hung vegetables, fruit and meat, chickens, rabbits, piglets, squirrels, huber, and venison. There were no human parts, so he guessed that the flesh of man was not so much a staple diet to these people as a food for religious purposes. All he did know was that he would have to take some meat with him. He gathered strips of dried huber, rolled them into a ball, and stuffed them in a bag. Then he took down an iron-headed spear and a sharp steel knife from their rack on the wall. Knife in belt and spear in hand, he went out the back door. Outside he stopped to listen to the far-off beating of drums and the chanting of voices. There must be quite a celebration around the wreck. Good, he muttered to himself. If they get drunk and pass out, I'll have time for what I want to do. Staying well within the shadows of the trees, he picked his way to the back of the hut in which the prisoners were. From where he stood, he could see that there were only six old women, about all the island's economy could afford, he supposed, and some ten infants, all toddlers. Most of these, once the excitement caused by the noisy warriors had subsided with their leave-taking, had lain down close to the fire and gone to sleep. The only one who might give real trouble, aside from the guard, was a boy of ten, the one who was now tapping softly on the drum. At first Green could not understand why he hadn't gone with the others of his age to the wreck, but the empty stare and the unblinking way he looked into the fire showed why. Green had no doubt that if he were to come close enough to the lad, he'd see that the eyeballs were filmed over with white. Blindness was nothing rare on this filthy planet. Satisfied as to everybody's location, he crept to the back of the hut and examined the walls. They were made of thick poles driven into the ground and bound together with rope taken from a roller's rigging. There were plenty of openings for him to look through, but it was so dark that he could see only the vague outlines moving about. He put his mouth to one of the holes and said softly, Amra! Somebody gasped. A little girl began to cry, but was quickly hushed up. Amra answered, faint with joy. "'Helen, it can't be you!' "'I am not thy father's ghost,' he replied, and wondered at the same time how he could manage to inject any levity at all into the midst of this desperate situation. He was always doing it. Perhaps it was not the product of a true humor, but more like the giggle of a person who was embarrassed or under some other stress, more the result of hysteria than anything else, his particular type of safety valve.' "'Here's what I'm going to do,' he said. "'Listen carefully, then repeat it after me so I'll know you have it down.' She had to hear it only once to give it back to him letter perfect. He nodded. "'Good girl. I'm going now.' "'Helen?' "'Yes,' he replied impatiently. "'If this doesn't work, if anything should happen to you or me, remember that I love you.' He sighed. Even in the midst of this, the eternal feminine emerged. I love you, too, but that hasn't got much to do with this situation. Before she could answer and waste more valuable time, he slid away, crawling on all fours around the corner of the hut. When he was where one more pace would have brought him into view of the guard and the old crones, he stopped. All this while he'd been counting the seconds. 
as soon as he'd clocked five minutes, which he thought would never pass, he rose and stepped swiftly around the corner, spear held in front of him. The guard was drinking out of his mug with his eyes closed and his throat exposed. He fell over with Green's spear plunged through his windpipe, just above the breastbone. The mug fell onto his lap and gushed its amber and foam over his legs. Green withdrew the blade and whirled, ready to run upon anybody who started to flee. But the old women were huddled on their knees around a large board on which they were rolling some flour, cackling and talking shrilly. The blind boy continued tapping, his open eyes glaring into the fire. Only one saw Green, a boy of about three. Thumb in mouth, he stared with great round eyes at this stranger. But he was either too horrified to utter a sound, or else he did not understand what had happened and was waiting to find out his elder's reactions before he offered his own. Green lifted one finger to his lips, in the universal sign of silence, then turned and lifted up the bar over the door. Amra rushed out and took the guard's spear from her husband. The dead man's knife went to Inzak's, and his other knife to Aga, a tall, muscular woman who was captain of the female deckhands and who had once killed a sailor while defending her somewhat dubious honor. At the same time, the chattering of the hags stopped. Green whirled around, and the silence was broken by shrieks. Frantically, the hags tried to scramble up from their stiffened knees and run away, but Green and the women were upon them before they could take more than a few steps. Not one of them reached the forest. It was grim work, one in which the Ephanikan women took fierce joy. Without wasting a look on the poor old carcasses, Green rounded up the children and the blind boy and put them in the prisoner's hut. He had to hold Aga back from slaughtering them. Amra, he was pleased to see, had made no motion to help them in their intended butchery. She, understanding his brief look, replied, I could not kill a child, even the spawn of these fiends. It would be like stabbing Paxi. Green saw one of the women holding his daughter. He ran to her, took Paxi out of her arms, and kissed the baby. Soon Amr's ten-year-old child by the sculptor came shyly and stood by his side, waiting to be noticed. He kissed her, too. You are getting to be a big girl soon, he said. Do you suppose you could tag along behind your mother and carry Paxi for her? She has to carry her spear. The girl, a big-eyed, red-headed beauty, nodded and took the baby. Green eyed the longhouses with the idea of setting them afire. He decided not to when it became apparent that the wind would carry sparks to the hut in which the savages' children were. Moreover, though a fire would undoubtedly create consternation among the roisterers at the wreck and keep them busy for some time, it would also cause them to start tracking down the refugees just that much sooner. Besides, there was the possibility of setting fire to the forest, wet though it was. He didn't want to destroy his only hiding place. He directed some women to go into the longhouse and load themselves with as much food and weapons as they could carry. In a few minutes, he had the party ready to leave. "'We'll take this path that leads out of the village, away from the path that goes to the wreck,' he said. "'Let's hope it goes to the other edge of the island, where we may find some small rollers on which we can escape. I presume these savages have some kind of sailing craft.' 
This path was as narrow and winding as the other one. It worked in the general direction of the western shore, and the savages were on the eastern shore. Their way at first led upward, sometimes through passes formed by two large rocks. Several times they had to skirt little lakes, catch basins for rain. Once a fish flopped out of the water, scaring them. The island was fairly self-sufficient, what with its fish, rabbits, squirrels, wild fowl, pigs, and various vegetables and fruit. He estimated that if the village was in the center of the island, then the mass should have had a surface area of about one and a half square miles. Rough though the land was, and thickly covered with grass, the place should offer cover for one refugee. For one, yes, but not for six women and eight children. After much puffing and panting, muttered encouragements to each other, and occasional cursing, they finally reached the summit of the tallest hill. Abruptly they found themselves facing a clearing which ran around its crown. Directly ahead of them was a forest of totem poles, all gleaming palely in the moonlight. Beyond it was the dark yawning of a large cave. Green walked out from the shadows of the branches to take a closer look. When he came back, he said, "'There's a little hut by the side of the cave. I looked in the window. An old woman's asleep in it. But her cats are wide awake and likely to wake her up.' "'All these totem poles bear the heads of cats,' said Aga. "'This place must be their holy of holies. It's probably taboo to all but the old priestess.' "'Maybe so,' replied Green. "'But they must hold religious services of some sort here.' There's a big pile of human skulls on the other side of the cave mouth, and also a stake covered with bloodstains. We can do two things. Go on down the other side of this hill, jump off onto the plain and take our chances there, or else hide inside the cave and hope that because it's taboo, nobody will explore it to look for us. It seems to me that that's the first place they'd look into, said Aga. Not if we don't wake the old woman... Then, if the savages come along later and ask her if anybody's come by, they'd get no for an answer. What about the cats? Green shrugged his shoulders. We'd have to take that chance. Perhaps, if once we get by them and into the cave, they may quiet down. He was referring to their caterwauling, which was beginning to sound dreadful. No, said Aga. That noise will be a signal to the islanders. They'll know something's up. Well, replied Green, I don't know what you intend doing, but I'm going into that cave. I'm too tired to run any further. So are we, affirmed the other women. We've reached the end of our strength. There was a silence, and into that silence came a voice, a man's. It whispered, Please do not be startled. Be quiet. It is I. Miran stepped out of the shadows behind them, holding his finger to his lips, his one eye round and pale in the moonlight. He was a ragged captain, not at all the elegantly uniformed commander of the Bird of Fortune and the wealthy-appearing patriarch of the clan Ephanikin. But he carried in his other hand a canvas bag. Green, seeing it, knew that Moran had managed somehow not only to escape with his skin, but had also carried off a treasure in jewels. "'Bold,' he announced, waving the bag, "'all is not lost.' Green thought he was referring to the jewels. However, Moran had turned and beckoned to someone in the darkness behind him. 
Out of it slipped Grisquetter. Tears shone in his eyes as he ran to his mother and fell into her arms. Amra began weeping softly. Until now she had repressed her grief over the children she thought forever lost to her. All thought had been directed to saving her own life and the lives of the two girls who had survived with her. Now, seeing her eldest son emerge from the shadows as if from the grave, had thawed the frozen well of sorrow. She sobbed. I thank the gods that they have given me back my son. If the gods are so wonderful, why do they kill your other two children? asked Moran sourly. And why do they kill my clansmen? And why do they smash my bird? Why? Shut up, said Green. This is no time to cry about anything. We have to get out with whole hides. The philosophizing and tears can come later. Menorox is an ungrateful god, muttered Moran. After all, I did for him, too. Amra dried her tears and said, How did you escape? I thought all the males who hadn't been killed in the wreck were speared. Almost everybody was, replied Grisquetter, but I crawled down into the hold and slipped through to a hiding place beneath one of the fish tanks, which had overturned. It was wet there, and there were dead fish nestling beside me. The savages did not find me, though doubtless they would have when they began salvaging. It was thinking about that that decided me to crawl back out on the other side of the roller away from the savages. I did so, and I found that I could belly my way through the grass growing on the edge. I almost died of fright, though, because I crawled head-on into Moran. He was hiding there, too. I was thrown off the foredeck by the impact, interrupted the captain. I should have broken every bone in my body, but I landed on a hull sail, which had come down and was lying on the starboard side, supported by the fallen mast. It was like falling into a hammock. From there I dropped into the grass and snaked along the very edge of the island. Several times I almost fell off and I would have if I'd been a pound fatter, an inch wider, as it was. Listen, said Grisquetter, breaking in, this island is the Wooroo. What do you mean? said Green. While I was clinging to the edge of the island, I thought I'd hang down over it and see if there was any place there to hide. There wasn't, because the underside of the island is one smooth sheet. I know, because I could see in the moonlight clear to the other side. It was smooth, smooth like a slab of iron. And that's not all. You know how the grass on the plains hereabouts has been tall, uncut? Well, the grass just ahead of the edge was uncut. But the grass underneath the island was being cut off. Rather, it was vanishing. The top of the grass was just disappearing into air. Only a lawn of grass about an inch high was left. Then this island is one big lawnmower, said Green. More than just interesting. But we'll have to investigate that later right now, and he walked toward the little hut by the cave mouth. As he approached it, several large house cats streaked out of the doorway. A moment later, Green came out. He grinned broadly. The priestess has passed out. The place smells like a brewery. The cats are in their cups, too, all drinking from bowls set on the ground for them, staggering around, yowling, fighting. If they don't wake her up, nothing can. I have heard that these old priestesses are often drunkards, said Amra. They lead a lonely life because they're taboo, and nobody even goes near them except during certain religious customs. They only have their bottle and their cats to keep them company. Ah, said Moran, 
You're thinking of the tale of Sam Drew, the tailor who turned sailor. Yes, that is supposed to be a story to entertain children, but I'm beginning to think there is a great deal to it. Remember, the story describes just such a hill and just such a cave. It is said that every roaming island has just such a place. And you talk too much, broke in Aga harshly. Let's get on into the cave. Green could appreciate what Aga's comment meant. Moran had lost face, because he'd allowed his vessel to be wrecked, and his clansmen murdered en masse. To Aga and the other women he was no longer Captain Moran, the rich patriarch. He was Moran, the shipwrecked sailor. A fat old sailor. Just that. Nothing more. He could have redeemed himself if he had committed suicide. But his eagerness to live had resulted in his placing himself on an even lower level in their estimation. Moran must have realized this, for he did not reply. Instead, he stood to one side. Green walked thirty paces into the cave, then looked back over his shoulder. The entrance was still visible, an arch outlined in the bright moonshine. Someone coughed. Green was about to caution them to keep quiet when he felt his nostrils tickling and had to fight to down a loud sneeze himself. Dust. Good, said Green. Maybe they never come down here. Suddenly the tunnel turned at right angles, to the left. The little light that penetrated from the entrance disappeared in total blackness. The party halted. What if there are traps set for intruders? wailed Inzax. That's a chance we'll have to take, Green growled. We'll go in the dark until we come to another turn. Then we'll light up a torch or two. The natives won't be able to see the glow. He walked ahead, feeling the wall with his left hand. Suddenly he stopped. Amra bumped into him. What is it? she asked anxiously. The rock wall has now become metal. Feel here. He guided her hand. You're right, she whispered. There's a definite seam, and I can tell the difference between the two. The floor is metal, too, added soon. My feet are bare, and I can feel it. What's more, the dust is all gone. Green went ahead, and after thirty more paces, he came to another ninety-degree turn, to the right. The walls and floor were composed of the smooth, cool metal. After making sure that the entire party was around the corner, he told a woman carrying some torches taken from a longhouse to light one. Its bright flare showed the group staring, round-eyed, at the large chamber in which they stood. Everywhere were bare gray metal walls and floors, no furniture of any kind, nor a speck of dust. There's a doorway to another room, he said. We might as well go on in. He took the torch from the woman, and, holding a cutlass in the other, he led the way. Once across the threshold, he halted. This room was even larger than the other, but it had furnishings of a sort, and its farther wall was not metal, but earth. At the same time, the room began to brighten, with light coming from an invisible source. Soon screamed and threw herself against her mother, clinging desperately to her waist. The babies began howling, and the other adults acted in the various ways that panic affected them. Green alone remained unmoved. He knew what was happening, but he couldn't blame the rest for their behavior. 
They had never heard of an electronic eye, so they couldn't be expected to maintain coolness. The only thing that Green feared at that moment was that the outcries would be heard by the savages outside the cave. So he hastened to assure the women that this phenomenon was nothing to be frightened about. It was common in his home country, a mere matter of white magic that anyone could practice. They quieted down, but were still uneasy. Wide-eyed, they bunched up about him. "'The natives themselves aren't scared of this,' he said. "'They must come here at times. See, there's an altar built against the dirt wall, and from the bones piled beneath it, I'd say that sacrifices were held here.' He looked for another door. There seemed to be none. He found it hard to believe that there couldn't be. Somehow he'd had the feeling that great things lay ahead of him. These rooms and this lighting were evidences of an earlier civilization that quite possibly had been on a level with his own. He'd known that the island itself must be powered with an automatically working anti-gravity plant, fueled either atomically or from the planet's magnetogravitic field. Why the whole unit should be covered with rocks and soil and trees he didn't know. But he had been sure that somewhere in the bowels of this mass of land was just such a place as this. And more. Where was the power plant? Was it sealed up so that no one could get to it? Or, as was likely, was there a door to the plant which could not be opened unless one had a key of some sort? First, he had to find the door. He examined the altar, which was made of iron. It was a platform about three feet high and ten feet square. Upon it stood a chair, fashioned from pieces of iron. From its back rose a steel rod about a half inch in diameter and ten feet long, its lower end held secure between two uprights by a thick iron fork. Once the fork was withdrawn, the rod would obviously fall over against the earth wall behind it, though the lower end would still remain on the uprights and would, in fact, stick against whoever was sitting in the chair at the moment. "'Odd,' said Green. "'If it weren't for those cat-headed idols on the ends of the platform and the bones at its foot, I'd not know this was an altar.' "'Bones! They're black. Burned black.' He looked again at the rod. "'Now,' he said half to himself, "'if I were to withdraw the fork and the rod fell, it would strike the wall.' That is evident. But what is it all about? Amra brought him some long pieces of rope. These were stacked against the wall, she said. Yes? Ah, now if I were to tie one end of this rope about the apex of that rod, and someone else were to stand upon the altar and take out the fork, then I could control which direction the rod would fall by pulling it toward me, or allowing it to go away from me and the person who had taken the fork out would then have plenty of time to get down from the altar and back to the region of safety, where the rope-wielder and his friends would be stationed. Alas, the poor fellow sitting in the chairs. Yes, I see it all now. He looked up from the rope held in his hand. Aga, he said sharply, get away from that wall! The tall, lean woman was walking past the altar, holding her bare cutlass in her hand. When she heard Green, she paused in her stride, gave him an astonished look, then continued. "'You don't understand,' she called back over her shoulder. "'This wall isn't solid earth. 
It's fluffy, like a young chick's feathers. It's dust. Dust. I think we can knock it down and cut our way through. There must be something on the other side. Aga! he yelled. Don't! Stop where you are! But she had lifted her blade and brought it down in a hard stroke that was to show him how easy the stuff would be to slash away. Green grabbed Amra and Paxi and dived to the floor, pulling them with him. Thunder roared and lightning filled the room, dazzling and deafening him. Even in its mist he could see the dark figure of Aga, transfixed, crucified in white fire. End of chapters 16 through 18 Show is recorded by TBO3. The music was found at http www.archive.org/sheethouse/techno. It is released under Creative Commons Attribute 2.5 license. And the music you are now hearing, which is Maple Leaf Frag, is from Mutopia. http://www.mutopiaproject.org. It is in the public domain. The audiobook is from LibriVox. This is not a LibriVox recording, however, if you would like to listen to this and other audiobooks or volunteer for LibriVox, please visit http www.librivox.org. This episode is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribute License. See you next week.